Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. DTW, Revoid, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Hello, welcome in. Good Friday to you. It is, indeed. Outkick the Culture, the podcast back on the air after a one-week hiatus. My apologies for that. A little bit under the weather. Just a little overwhelmed last week, quite frankly, but so much to get into today. My name is Jason Martin. I am the host of this show. You can follow me on Twitter at jmartoutkick. You can email me love or hate to jmartclone at gmail.com. So, there was quite the leak this week. Biggest show in the world. Couldn't keep it under wraps. HBO scrambling, trying to get the links down, trying to get the torrents down. We're going to talk a lot about Game of Thrones and the morality of torrents and piracy and all of those things. From my perspective, here coming up here in just a second, we're going to lead off with that as a matter of fact. Also, today dropping on Netflix, The Defenders, which is finally putting Luke Cage, Jessica Jones, Daredevil, and the Immortal Iron Fist together in one show, kind of a makeshift Avengers or a street-level Avengers putting all four of their original properties together into one show. I've seen the first four episodes. That's what they released to critics early. It did hit today, so a lot of you, as you're listening to this, will be hearing some of it. So I'm not going to go into spoilers because there are a lot of spoilers early and often in this show, but I'll give you kind of an overview of how I feel four episodes in, and then next week we will spoil the shit out of this thing and talk it top to bottom now that you or once you've had more of a chance to see it also tomorrow night on amc coming back for its final season halt and catch fire christopher cantwell and christopher rogers show absolutely one of my favorite shows on tv the best drama you're not watching if you didn't read my review at outkick.com i urge you to go to that website and do so i went into great detail without really spoiling too much of what's going on but i'm going to tell you here in about 20 minutes, why you need to be watching Halt and Catch Fire right now. First three seasons available on Netflix. You probably won't be able to get caught up in time. It's 10 episodes a season. So 30 episodes you'd have to watch, but absolutely worth the time as it's one of the most overlooked, underappreciated, and best dramas on television. So we will talk about that. Uh, And one other thing, and this is going to be intriguing, I'm going to talk about my obsessions as it relates to documentaries and news and just things I can't get enough of. And I'm going to do it behind the prism of Leah Remini's show, Scientology in the Aftermath, which came back to A&E this week. And I'll just go ahead and let the cat out of the bag. I've been obsessed with researching and following Scientology for over half a decade, probably about seven, eight years now. I've been really, really intrigued by it. So I'm going to tell you where you can go to read some of the best books The podcast that I discovered a few years ago that I still re-listen to the episodes now because they're so damn great, and I'm going to tell you just how I feel, honestly, about this Scientology story, where it's headed, some of the key players, all of those kinds of things. We talked a little bit about Up and Vanished on the last podcast. I suggested you go down that or download that, and I actually reached out to Payne Lindsay. Haven't heard back from him yet, but I'm trying to get him on the show so I can discuss how he's done what he's done. Uh, what the process has been, what the pitfalls and challenges are, and maybe critique him a little bit because early on Up and Vanished was a lot better than some of the episodes that I've gotten to now. I'm still not completely done with it, but I'm seeing a lot of spinning 
and a lot of theories and a lot of things that are being thrown out with a whole lot of or without a whole lot of fact behind them. So maybe we'll get into that as well if we have time. I always mention that we're going to hit things that we don't because we just run out of time, and that's just kind of the way it is. Also, Hitman's Bodyguard comes out today, uh, and I saw Good Time, Robert Pattinson's film, The Safdie Brothers. I saw Ringer called it a seminal New York film. I call it a seminal dread film, the most dread, dark film I've seen since Requiem for a Dream. I will never watch it again. It was supremely intense. The acting was very good, but honestly, I can't recommend it because it was that dark. Like, it's just like, really, do you need to see this? But Robert Pattinson's amazing, so maybe I'll talk a little bit about that as well. But let's lead off with Game of Thrones. Not necessarily the episode, but the leak. So, HBO Nordic Spain released accidentally episode six, Beyond the Wall is the title, that airs two days from now on Sunday night. By the time you're listening to this, maybe you've already actually seen it. And not because of the leak, but because you're not listening until after the weekend. Maybe you're listening while you're in traffic on the way to this ridiculous eclipse on Monday. This is an enormous situation. Two weeks ago, four guys actually have been arrested in India for releasing the fourth episode. This was different. This was HBO. It was not broadcast. Originally, the story was that they broadcast six in place of five. That's not what happened. What happened is they, on demand, on the the equivalent of HBO Go for that particular service overseas... They uploaded episode six by mistake and realized it after an hour, which is awfully long, quite frankly, and then they pulled it down. But in that hour, people had enough time to watch it. One person recorded it on like their phone or a tripod, but tech-savvy people can get things done really quickly. So there are 1080p versions and even, you know, 265, X265 versions out there in HD that you can see. The audio is a little bit sketchy from what I've been told. And the reason I use the phrase from what I've been told is because I have not seen this. Some people are, one, not going to believe me, and others are going to say, why the hell have you not seen this? So let me lay it out for you. I'm not anti-torrent guy by any means. I, you know, I was in college. I, I did the same thing you did with Napster and LimeWire and all that kind of stuff. It's different for me now as a television critic. So let me tell you a little bit of a story. When I decided I wanted to start writing about TV and Clay gave me a platform to do it, I still had to prove myself to people. I mean, yes, I can wait for episodes to air and I can write on them at 11 p.m. at night. That is not really the way it's supposed to be done. That's not the way I have to do it anymore. I reached out to all the networks, and at various times, they would get back with me finally. Some I had to pester quite hard and say, look, I'm serious Uh, Can you add me to your VIP list, your media list, your screener list, your PR list, all of those things? I spoke to various executives, and I gained access, slowly but surely. Now I've got film access, and I've got television access. Right now, sitting waiting for me this weekend, and I can't wait to sit down and watch all of this, Narcos Season 3, all of it. And one of my favorite shows on TV, BoJack Horseman, Season 4, all of it. And just as a programming note for you... If you want to be up with me on something we're going to be doing on this show for the next month, start watching BoJack Horseman over the next seven days because next Friday, we are going to go in detail on season one. The following Friday, we're going to go in detail on season two. Then the Friday after that, season three, and I'm going to give you my review of season four, which will hit that Friday, I believe it's September the 8th or right thereabouts. 
but I'm not going to spoil anything for you because you won't have had a chance to see it by the time we talk about it. The week after, we will hit season four. So each week, we're going to talk about a season of BoJack Horseman. So this is your warning. This is your signal. Watch the first season of BoJack Horseman this week. Even if you think the first few episodes are a little bit dry, stick with it. You will be glad that you did. By far, one of the best shows on TV. I absolutely cannot wait to sit down tomorrow and knock out season four of BoJack and then probably rewatch it about three or four times. But since I'm going to be doing this rewatch series with you and going in depth on each season, I'm going to be rewatching season one this week as well. I've already seen the first four, but I'm going to go back and watch the first four again because it's been a few weeks since I decided that, hey, this made sense for us to do on Outkick the Culture. But again, HBO was one of the first networks I reached out to. One of the reasons was... When I decided, hey, you know, I could probably pull this off now. I'd been writing for about seven, eight months for Clay at this point. True Detective was coming back. Nick Pizzolatto's season, uh, season two was coming. And I wanted that. And I knew that the first three episodes had been released to critics. Well, damn, I'm a critic. Maybe I should reach out to HBO. So I reached out to HBO. After a couple of emails, I finally got somebody to write me back, kind of asked me my credentials, went to some people at Fox and made sure I was who I said I was. And I sounded pretty competent in my email. And they gave me a VIP account. And then I have to speak anytime I want a series from HBO. I have to go to whoever is in charge of that specific show and ask them for access. There are some networks that are not like that. FX, for example, once I got in with FX, anything FX puts up, I get. They have a website devoted to all of their series screeners. Once you're in, you're in. Same thing with AMC, although they will block certain content until you ask for it. But Halt and Catch Fire, I've seen the first three episodes of the new season, as have all critics. Uh, Walking Dead, you might have to ask for, but you can still get it as long as you say, hey, look, I'm going to be covering The Walking Dead, and they give it to you. So HBO gives you access. Two years ago, Game of Thrones, the the first four episodes of season five leaked onto the internet. They were everywhere. They were all over Pirate Bay. They were all over you know, all of your favorite tort sites as well as Daily Motion and video and all that until they got pulled down by HBO. Not necessarily as a result of that because they knew everybody that was actually here was going to be paying attention to all of this anyway, but they did not release screeners in Season 6. There was a rumor in Season 5 that I thought was funny but actually plausible that the Church of Scientology was responsible for the leak of Season 5 because they were irate that HBO was actually going to go forward and run Alex Gibney's Going Clear Scientology in the Prison of Belief documentary based on the Lawrence Wright book, which we will discuss when we get to the Leah Remini part of today's podcast. I don't think that's what happened, but I always joke that that's what happened because I think it's funny. So season six, they didn't really screeners. They really didn't need to. It's kind of like Star Wars. It's like Star Wars, you don't have to do premieres for Star Wars because nobody cares what your review is anyway. They're going to go see it, and then they might read your review, but everybody's going to be watching Episode 8. That said, there's going to be a screening for Episode 8, just like there was for Episode 7, and just like there was for Rogue One. I was at both, and they actually just do this for media. They don't do these deals where they let in people that win radio contests and all this. It's literally just media and no guests, and it's usually about you know 15 or 20 people in a full-size movie theater watching this thing on a Tuesday morning at like 11 a.m. Usually movie screenings, even for the media, are in the evening. This one will be, I guarantee you, it's going to be the Tuesday before that Friday, and it's going to be at like 11.30 a.m. I'm going to do the Outkick the Coverage show that morning. 
probably go hit the gym and then immediately go to the theater to watch this thing and then I'll write about it and you'll be able to read it at outkick.com. So some shows they don't do screeners for. Another example, at least, you know, Twin Peaks, they, again, they release the screener on the Showtime site at the same time it's running live because there's, I guess there's a chance for spoilers. There certainly are, and there's all these mysteries and everything surrounding David Lynch's show. We haven't talked about it much here. It's definitely been an up and down reunion. That show never really has been what it was in season one, but if you like David Lynch, you're still watching Kyle McLaughlin. I do agree that with the ringer when they say that Kyle McLaughlin might be doing the best acting job on TV right now. That very well may be true. Jessica Beale of the Center, which I'm going to go into next week on this show, is probably the other one right now that is really showing out. That Center show is spectacular. If you like serial killers and mind, that kind of stuff, like the Mindhunter show that David Fincher is associated with that we're going to be talking about on this show uh, when it releases on Netflix here in three or four weeks, the center is perfect for you if you like that kind of stuff. So you should probably check that out. It's been a hit for USA. Didn't know that it was going to be, but it's kind of been the Mr. Robot for USA this summer. So most shows do screeners, but Game of Thrones did not in season six. They had a movie premiere out in LA, like a red carpet deal, but you had to go to it in LA. Uh, I couldn't get out there. And LA-based critics really are the only ones that went. And they did the same thing this year. They know all the critics that are going to be watching Game of Thrones and writing about it. As this season has moved along, I've wished that I could write about it every week, but Clay has always handled that. That's the one series he kind of handles, so I'm going to do it. But I decided I'm going to write after the finale about it as a penultimate season, which is something we discussed two weeks ago on this show, and just kind of comparing it to other penultimate seasons and explaining why the show has laid out the way it has in its next to last year, which has been very very good by the way so all the access that i got from hbo i don't want to lose that i don't want to jeopardize that i don't want to do anything they would deem disrespectful they watch my twitter feed i know that because i'll get emails from time to time thanking me for saying something nice about for example the leftovers or whatever it might be and once i said hey i'm gonna have a review for you coming up of maybe it was veep or something and they sent me a message and said, hey, you know, embargo review until blah, blah, blah. I'm like, oh, no, no, no. I just meant uh, something very, very broad, nothing specific, not giving away spoilers and things like that. So people are watching critics' social media feeds. Let's say I go watch this Game of Thrones episode. It's, it's implausible to think this, but if sites were to get taken down as part of some kind of sting operation later on, and IP addresses were dumped as part of that, they couldn't, you know, the same thing as Ashley Madison. It's like the reason you don't cheat with a professional is because if that professional goes down, they might tell you that your information is not there, but that might not actually be the case. Histories have a way of staying behind. So let's say they dump all these IP addresses when they take down these various sites or these various people and they find out everybody that was watching this or everybody that downloaded this and they can trace that to me. And I'm a television critic that they've given exclusive access to, part of which is that I'm not going to share it, that I'm not going to disseminate it, that I'm not going to take my cell phone and record what I'm watching. That's why you will never actually be able to see this. Maybe I'll actually tweet out a photo once just to show you what this looks like. But on all these sites, whether it's FX or whether it's Netflix, which it's actually probably the biggest on Netflix, HBO, whatever it might be, When I'm watching a screener, my email address is plastered in front of my face with a watermark, and it's not in the corner usually. On Netflix, it is actually right in the center of the screen, just off to the right. 
my email address is right there and there's nothing I can do technically to get it off the screen. And that is because if I wanted to leak that, I would have to leak it with my own information directly on it and they could immediately figure out exactly what I did, who I was, restrict my access or go after me for legal reasons. Same way with HBO. So they do care about this stuff. When episode four leaked a couple of weeks ago, it was still at that point the highest or the most watched episode of Game of Thrones ever. It didn't stop people from watching the episode, which the question is how many people watched it early? And the people that watched it early are generally probably people that would watch it twice because they're that big of fans. So that's the argument for it. The argument against it is the reason that they don't release everything at one time is because they want to control the dialogue for longer than one week. When Netflix puts out the Defenders today, as they have, everybody's going to watch those episodes and it's going to be over. You're not talking about House of Cards for 13 weeks. You're talking about House of Cards with the people that have seen House of Cards and you're doing it for about six hours. At max, I'm talking like total. Like you'll talk about it a couple of different times. You're not talking about House of Cards for six straight hours with one person. But it's one conversation at that point. Game of Thrones becomes an event that you sit down for every Sunday night for however many weeks. This season it's seven. Final season it's going to be six. And you discuss what just took place, how it relates to what's already happened, and how that could actually inform upon what's going to happen in the future. That's fun. Binge-worthy shows, nothing wrong with that. Watching Glow in one sitting, excellent. Watching Orange is the New Black, whatever it is. Watching it with your girlfriend or your boyfriend or your significant other or your best friend or your roommate or your parents or whatever. It's great. But it's good to have both. There are some shows that are binge-worthy and then there are some shows, I would say, that are not. Game of Thrones could be binge-worthy, but I actually think that it's better to have a week to process and think and be able to look forward to something again. Everything is so instant gratification today. So the reason HBO does this is to control the dialogue and because they have to fill a schedule for longer than three weeks. If they release Westworld, Veep, and all that stuff at one time, they'd have about you know six or seven big days and that would be it for them. Does it hurt Netflix? No, but that's not the same model. These channels still exist on television. Until that changes... They still have to do things episodically. Could they release the entire season on HBO Go at the very beginning? Yes, they could. Would everybody sit down every week if they did that and watch it? No, because you'd have probably seen it three or four times by that point. So they're doing this for a reason. As long as HBO has made the decision that they're going to release this on a weekly basis, I think it's disrespectful to David Benioff and D.B. Weiss and to everyone at HBO and to everyone associated with Game of Thrones to propagate and back up the piracy and hacker and leak culture. If nobody goes and cares about these leaks, if nobody goes and watches this stuff, it either goes away or it loses all of its power. That's why the report or the rumor came out that maybe HBO leaked this intentionally just to say, screw you hackers, we're not going to pay your ransom, we'll just release it and make what you have completely irrelevant. I'm fine with that idea. When this leak actually happened... A few days ago, I figured and thought, I didn't figure, but I thought that HBO should go ahead and release it. Just say, you know what? We are going to put this on TV tonight at 8 p.m. in HD and control the night. Because if they released that, it would have been all over Twitter, would have been the number one story, would have dropped the leak story down. It would have still been part of it, but the story would have been that HBO is saying, screw you, we're just going to go ahead and put it on tonight. And then 
It would have been a fascinating study the next day to see how the ratings actually worked and how many people tuned in even with just 10 hours of notice ahead of time. So I think that there's a disrespect thing. HBO, because of the way that they have asked me to control what it is that they give me early, what I can review, what I can watch, what I can process and get prepared to talk about on this podcast and in my pieces, I didn't feel right about it. And again, you know, I've downloaded Torrents. I'll admit that right now. But not this one. This one didn't feel right. There was something about it. And here's the other thing. I'm talking on this podcast, and a lot of times we talk about the episode that just happened, and I say what I think is going to happen in the future. I don't do it as much with Game of Thrones because the dirty little secret about Game of Thrones and me is I need to go back and rewatch it because I haven't really done that, and I don't know the intricacies of this story the way that I do most shows. There's so much happening, so many characters, there's so many things you could forget about. I always get tweets from you guys telling me things that I've forgotten about. Just like, hey, does this mean this because of what happened back in season three? I'm like, oh, God. It's almost a blessing that I don't go into too much detail for my own sanity because I don't know that I could do it all that effectively compared to some of the podcasts that are out there that spend hours and hours pouring over every millisecond of this footage. But how can I sit here behind this microphone, not talk about episode six because I know most of you listening have not seen it. And if I were to talk about what's happened in episode six, if HBO were listening or if any publicist was listening or anybody, they would immediately know that I did what they wouldn't have wanted me to do. That morally I was in a pretty rough spot. That I watched an illegal stream. That I downloaded something illegally. So I can't talk about the episode. It just becomes that awful secret that you desperately want to tell people about, but you can't. I hate having secrets that I can't talk about when there are people that would be invested in what I have to say. So what's the purpose for me watching it now, potentially with audio that's not that great? And certainly, even in 1080, it's not going to look anywhere near as good as it's going to when it actually airs. What's the benefit to me? I can't tell you about the story. I can't talk about what happened. I could say this is the greatest episode in the series history, but I can't go any further than that. I could say spoiler alert and tell you to turn your radios down. This is a podcast. Why not wait? There's no advantage to me other than seeing the story faster. And all that means is I've got to wait 10 days for the finale, unless that leaks on Nordic this week. And if that does, maybe that's a completely different discussion. 82-minute episode, by the way, will be the finale. That's probably going to be the average of episode lengths for the final season as they're all speculated to be feature length, meaning hour and a half, somewhere in that neighborhood. Shorter films, but films. I just don't see the advantage. I love the show just like everybody else, but I can wait. And I'm going to wait. I'm not even going to watch it live on Sunday because SummerSlam Sunday, and I'll be covering that for... Squared Circle Radio here in Nashville, as well as for OutKick, as I usually do, as I worked in the industry for 10 years. But just because it's there doesn't mean it's okay for you to do it just because you subscribe to HBO. That's just my personal opinion. I don't think that you're morally repugnant if you watch this thing. I don't think it's a big deal at all. But I do think that 
if they're going to release it the way they're going to release it, then I have enough respect for Weiss, for Benioff, for George R. R. Martin's creation, for HBO and the executives and the time spent in scheduling this thing and getting it out and marketing it and all of those things, not to just cheapen it and go grab it the second that it's available when HBO wouldn't want me to do that, in my own opinion. And as a critic, and with the access, which means they've placed trust in me not to screw them over, that's why I didn't do it. Doesn't mean I'm looking down on you if you did. But that's why I haven't seen it, and that's why I'm not going to be talking about what happened in that episode today. This has been a wonderful season of Game of Thrones, as good a penultimate season of a drama as I've seen in a long time. And these last two are likely going to be very good, and then we're going to have a long wait, honestly, because if I had to bet on it right now, HBO's not going to ask them to rush, and we're not going to see the final season until 2019. Mark that down. Because this one started late, with the production schedule and the weather and all of the things that kind of backed it up and delayed it. And if they're going to be doing feature length in particular, and there's going to be so much that they have to accomplish, I don't see it happening. I see Westworld next fall, but I do not see Game of Thrones returning until the spring of 2019 for its final season. So you got a ways to wait, but it's been awfully good. And if you just don't like dragons, don't like medieval, whatever it is, Time to jump on board. The show's fantastic. It's one of the great water cooler experiences we've ever had in television. And you should watch it. I just don't think you should have seen episode six by now. Just personally my opinion. So that was probably long-winded, but I think it covered a lot of ground and kind of told you maybe a little bit of how the screener system works and at least gave you an idea of why I made the decision that I made. Now let's talk about The Defenders. Netflix put out Daredevil, two seasons of Daredevil. Who knew how that was going to work? And it worked out great. Vincent D'Onofrio, fantastic villain as Wilton Fisk, or Wilson Fisk, rather. Charlie Cox, very, very charismatic and good in his Matt Murdock role. Made you forget how bad Ben Affleck was. Uh, Deborah Ann Wool, really solid Karen Page character. Uh, Foggy Nelson played exquisitely. Like, it's very, very good. Very, very dark. And then season two came out, and it was kind of half and half. You had John Bernthal's Punisher, and then you had Elektra in the back half of the season. And most people, including me, agreed that it was very, very good when the Punisher was center stage. But once Elektra hit, show basically fell off a cliff, and the back half of season two was not very good at all. Mike Coulter's Luke Cage, which was the third show that was released. I skipped over two, but I did it intentionally. I'll get there in a second. Luke Cage was more of a gritty show. They're all gritty, but this one took place in Harlem, and it really wasn't nearly as much about the kind of outlandish superhero stuff that we have seen in some of the others. And I thought Mike Coulter was very good as Luke Cage. He still is. Has the right look. Rosario Dawson did a great job there, as she has in her appearances in all of these shows. Luke Cage was a success. Another example where if it had been 10 episodes, it probably would have gotten another letter grade higher or at least would have gotten a plus on it. That's the story with all of these superhero shows for Netflix. They go 13 episodes, and they shouldn't. It's like they feel like they have to because House of Cards started the trend, and it was 13 episodes, and then most of the shows are 13, but they don't have to be. Ozark was 10. Should have been like three, as far as I'm concerned. I'm not backing off that review, by the way. But 
And then you had Immortal Iron Fist, which was the last one, which got just pilloried and wasn't very good and was accused of racism and xenophobia and all sorts of fun stuff. So it kind of limped in after that. And then there was number two, which came out right after Daredevil season one a few years ago, and that's Kristen Ritter playing Jessica Jones with David Tennant as Kilgrave. Carrie Ann Moss was in there. That is my favorite of all of them. That was a great show. That show narrowly missed my top 10 a few years ago. I absolutely love that. If you're going to watch one of them, I would say watch that and then watch the first season of Daredevil and then watch Luke Cage. But Jessica Jones is great, and just the idea that she was going to be a part of the Defenders made me care more about this than I would have otherwise. Because I've seen Guardians of the Galaxy. I've seen the Avengers. I still am not impressed with anything I've seen coming from Justice League, but we'll see. I think that they've made a mistake because Wonder Woman has all this momentum for DC, and it's positive momentum. They've got their Iron Man now. But if Justice League comes out and stinks, they lose all that momentum. They are on a one good movie streak after about 15 terrible ones. Since Christopher Nolan stopped directing uh, DC films after The Dark Knight Rises, it's just been a dumpster fire, a landfill for DC. Suicide Squad and Man of Steel that didn't really measure up the way that it could have and Dawn of Justice, which was just total crap fest. Unless it was Lego Batman, which that's a stretch to actually include that here but it was very good it's pretty much been wonder woman and a bunch of stuff you don't want to see i don't even want to talk about green lantern i'm still upset so you may kill your momentum if you do that but i've seen these superhero team-ups we've seen this the inhumans is coming this fall and so here comes the defenders and it's built around daredevil jessica jones luke cage and the immortal iron fist iron fist eh, didn't really work out very well Daredevil was good, maybe not great, because of the way Season 2 played out. Jessica Jones was very good. Luke Cage was strong. So they got people that you want to see, and you like most of the people in the roles, even Finn as Iron Fist, despite the fact people wanted to see other individuals cast there, more true to the story, especially ethnically. He's done okay. He's got a little bit of an arrow thing going on. A little bit like Chris Pratt as Andy Dwyer. I'm not talking about Chris Pratt now, but the Chris Pratt with the facial hair and all that. He reminds me a little bit of Andy Dwyer when I see Finn there doing that role. So these four people are getting together to save the universe because that's what happens in these team-ups. First four episodes of The Defenders, they do not meet until the third episode. And, interestingly enough... Not necessarily because of this, but I'm sure that this is part of it. Until you get to the third episode, I was not very into this. I fell asleep screening both the first two episodes of this show. And that's with another great villain. One thing they've done really well in these series is cast villains. D'Onofrio, I mentioned Fisk. Uh, David Tennant as Kilgrave was just phenomenal. And here is Sigourney Weaver playing Alexandra. I'm not going to go into much detail about her because you're going to watch the show most likely. But she's associated with The Hand, which, of course, you knew was kind of behind all of this. Sigourney Weaver playing a villain is awesome because Sigourney Weaver playing anything can be awesome if the source material is good. Because Sigourney Weaver plays stoic uneasiness about as good as anybody. I have said, and I used to coach people in professional wrestling that wanted to do interviews and cut promos. 
that the worst thing that they could do nine times out of ten was to scream at an audience. You've got a microphone in your hand. You don't need to scream. But even if you're not, screaming at somebody might make them a little uncomfortable, but it's not really going to scare anybody. You're eventually going to make people laugh at you because it's so cartoonish and over the top. If I'm screaming a promo at you, just screaming at you at the top of my lungs, you're going to tune that out more so than anything. You might not mess with me, but it's not going to have the same effect as if I actually just walk up to you four feet away, or even maybe there's a long boardroom table and I'm at the end of it and you're at the other end of it. And we're clearly not on the same side. And instead of screaming at you at the top of my lungs, I say point blank at a very measured pace, I'm going to send my guys to disembowel you. I'm going to kill your family. I'm going to string your mother up on a clothesline in the middle of Times Square. I'm going to eviscerate your father's face. Or even worse, like think about this. Just think about all the serial killers. I've talked about this before, I think, on this show. Iceman and and people like that. The most frightening people aren't necessarily just nutballs the way that they sound aesthetically. They're crazy because they're crazy. Nothing scarier than somebody saying something just abhorrent at a measured tone, almost like it doesn't even bother them or register that it is obtuse, that it isn't normal. If I say, and listen, I'm not trying to make light of this, but I'm trying to make a point here. If I say, I am going to molest your son, I am going to rape your daughter, and I'm going to cut your mother's head off, it's so much more effective than anything else that I could do. So in pro wrestling, when you come out and say, I'm going to kick your ass, like that'll work once in a blue moon. But if I say, I'm going to kick your ass, I'm going to make sure that you have no food to put on your table, and I'm not going to give one damn about that because you're irrelevant to me. I'm a dick, right? I mean, I'm somebody to be very concerned about. That's what Sigourney Weaver does. I still haven't seen her raise her voice once in this show, but she's been terrifying because she has a blank stare and a very good one. You remember her from roles like Ripley in Alien or Dana in Ghostbusters. Yes, I know it's a comedy, but even then, anything Sigourney Weaver does, there's there's just something different about it when there's sci-fi involved or fantasy involved. So here she is again. Kind of treading water between this supernatural superhero version of a show and something that's based in more reality. Because the difference between the Defenders and the Avengers, for example, other than the glowing fist of Danny Rand, is that they, for all intents and purposes, look like normal people. Luke Cage is wearing a hoodie. Jessica Jones is wearing a leather jacket. Daredevil, Matt Murdock, often wearing a suit. In the first four episodes, that's all I've seen him wearing, as a matter of fact. So it's a little bit different. It's more grounded. There's more of Nolan in this, and there's nuance in that these characters are all shades of gray. Like, their hearts are pure, but their actions are very skewed. They make mistakes. This is not Wonder Woman or Spider-Man Homecoming, which I think were welcome because we had seen enough of the shade of gray in our superhero films. This is more of that shade of gray. Doesn't mean that the villains have things about them that you like, but it means that the heroes are conflicted. 
there's good and bad within just about everybody. So the first couple of episodes, you see all four of the heroes, for lack of a better word, the street-level heroes, in their environments, kind of still doing their thing. Matt Murdock as a lawyer in court. Jessica Jones as an investigator, deciding whether to take a case that ends up being very relevant to the larger plot. Luke Cage, who we last saw at the end of his season in jail. And Iron Fist still on the quest for the hand. And you see the characters that are usually associated with them. And then the way Netflix gets these people together is that they tie them together through these secondary characters. You find out within the first 30 minutes that Foggy Nelson, who of course is Matt Murdock's sidekick, is trying to be the attorney for Luke Cage. That's just one example. And then later, when Jessica Jones gets in a little bit of trouble with the law, Matt Murdock is the one that's brought in. So they end up together in a very interestingly more natural way than you would maybe expect in a show like this. But when you have this much time to fill and not a two-hour film, you can slow down and tell this in a better way. So the first two episodes, again, I thought were fairly dull, even though the end of the first episode was fascinating and it explained something that was huge in terms of Without giving it away, there's a big-time seismic event that takes place at the end of the first episode. And you find out that the villains are actually behind it pretty much immediately. You know it as it's happening. And then, three episodes later, there's a flippant comment made. Not really flippant, but just it's not really dwelled on, but it's so big. When they say Chernobyl, Pompeii, these are events that appeared to be natural but were actually done blah, 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 blah by this same organization. That's interesting. Episode 3, by the end of episode 3, that's when they've actually come together or at least met each other. And then episode 4 happens and it ends in a great cliffhanger. And that's the last one I've seen. It's very good. They didn't give us the whole season like almost every Netflix show does. But to give us those four and the way that it ends, it's almost like they cliffhang the critics. So my feelings on the Defenders are sort of incomplete because it could still go to crap. It could go to pot real fast, just like season two of Daredevil did. So I've got to give you a review of the first four episodes this week and say, I thought the first two were okay. I thought the second two were very good. Really liked it. And now I'm very excited to actually finish it up because of what they did in those last two episodes the three and four episodes i think the acting and talent is still solid i still like the people they have in those roles i'm interested to see how this relationship continues to play out because these are not friends these are people that aren't sure about each other don't trust each other don't know each other are learning all this like it's very very intriguing but it's well done and they have a long season to try and get through it so next week we'll talk a lot more in detail about the defenders but i would suggest if you're a superhero fan you should watch it but also if you just like interesting fantasy sci-fi-ish kind of storytelling not a big fan of the ninja stuff and there's a little bit more of that than i like iron fist plays more of a key role maybe than you would think based on which shows got more love but because of the villain it actually makes sense. 
So as an incomplete right now, I'll say the Defenders is about a B minus somewhere in that neighborhood, and we'll talk more about it after I've had a chance to see it all. But that's a good primer. You should definitely check it out, especially if you watch the other shows and you like them. I'm also going to make another prediction, which is that John Bernthal's Punisher show, which is coming in a few months. If you don't know who John Bernthal is, he's kind of been around the block since that point. He's done some film work. He was in Baby Driver in a fairly small role. Black Mass. He was in Black Mass as well. But you probably know him best just because the first thing that you really ever saw John Bernthal do was play Shane in The Walking Dead, which was a key season one role that didn't have much length once they got a little bit further for obvious reasons if you're a Walking Dead fan. But John Bernthal is playing the Punisher. He's playing Frank Castle. And he was superb in Daredevil in that role. And this is a damaged Punisher that's right along the lines of the darkness of all these other shows. I believe that this Punisher show is going to be the real stud of this entire Netflix Marvel situation to this point. And maybe Jessica Jones Season 2 will be able to kind of play off that as well. But those two are both on the horizon, and those two are the ones I'm most excited about. But The Defenders is definitely worth your time if you're a fan of what you've seen so far from all of those properties. I like it. I like the four of them together now that I've actually seen that happen, and I'm looking forward to watching more of that. Halt and Catch Fire. I'm not going to talk too much about this yet because I know not enough of you are watching this. I wrote about it at Outkick.com, and I'm begging you to go watch it. A period piece that when you first saw it, you're like, is this Mad Men in the 80s set around the computer industry? No, but it's another period piece and it is about a specific industry. But as was Mad Men, not about advertising, although advertising played a key role. Same thing is true of Halt and Catch Fire, which started in the 80s in what's called Silicon Prairie, which is Texas. And it was Lee Pace plays Joe McMillan, and Joe McMillan is the equivalent of Steve Jobs. But it's not about Apple, because Apple actually exists in the world of Halt and Catch Fire. His kind of tech-savvy guy that's fairly high up on the food chain is Gordon Clark, played by Scoot McNary, who you may remember from Fargo earlier this year when he died in the first episode of the season. Clark is Wozniak, for better or worse. His wife is Carrie Bechet, Donna Clark, who, if you've watched the show at all, there have been ups and downs there, and she's been fantastic in the role. Toby Huss... John Bosworth, sort of the executive above the creative side of Joe McMillan, the dreamer, and the tech side and the more hardware-oriented side of Gordon Clark. But John Bosworth, another kind of Texas slick-talking executive in the tech industry. PR, solid. Very good with people. And then finally, there is Cameron Howe. And Cameron Howe is a hacker and a rebel and listens to The Clash and punk rock, and she doesn't care about much of anything except when she's sitting in front of a computer screen because her life is just a complete shit show. Early on, Halt and Catch Fire was nothing but cliches. Joe McMillan was Don Draper light. Gordon Clark was just the tech geek that did nothing else to add any nuance to his character. And he was having problems at home because, of course, he was. And Cameron Howe was the rebel, the one that would invite, you know, 10, 15 people into her hotel room and trash it because 
Of course she would. Point here being, all these characters did exactly what you would think they would do and nothing more. It was predictable. It was very stock. It was paint by numbers. And it felt like, ah, man, they have a real opportunity because this is such an interesting place to start. But this just ain't firing. No pun intended. First episode, they released it about two weeks early just to try and build buzz. They released it online. And the ratings came in and they were not good. And a lot of people, similar to The Leftovers, deserted it and never came back because the first four or five episodes of season one were a little bit of a struggle. They weren't terrible, but they just weren't very good. Then the back half of the season came and they really kind of figured it out. By the time they got to episode 10, they were rolling. By the time they got to a finale that had some twists and turns in, you're like, wow, this has gone places I didn't expect. Then they sent me the first four episodes of season two about a month before it aired did amc and i watched it and i stuck with it anyway because i believed in the concept one thing about peak tv if you buy into part of something don't give up on it too fast because it does take some shows time to develop networks don't necessarily always have that luxury you've seen shows canceled in one or two weeks just completely given up on but people tuned out of leftovers and missed the best show of the year people backed off of halt and catch fire and have missed one of the most rewarding dramas of the last three or four years. Season two of Halt and Catch Fire started great, ended great. was a tremendous episode, a tremendous season of television. Then season three was even better. Season three made my top ten last year, easily. And season four doesn't miss a beat. There have been time jumps, a big time jump going into this season, as a matter of fact. Relationship changes. Each character has done things I never would have expected them to do. The angles this show has taken and the directions in which it has gone prove how creative and how willing to risk everything the creators are. Cantwell and Rogers have done a great job in taking a show that looked like it was the most obvious thing ever and turning it into one of the more unpredictable things that we've seen in a while. Because it's not the concept like The Leftovers where everything's unpredictable, which means nothing is. Here, it's, you've got an industry, nobody's a criminal, you've got a marriage that's sort of on the rocks, you've got another burgeoning relationship, you've got an executive trying to stay relevant in his 60s, you've got all of these things, and you've got the tech boom, and this, again, it's all set up, I said it wasn't Apple, really season one was kind of like the evolution of Compaq, it was personal computing, it was a competitor for both IBM and Mac that came out into the space called The Giant is actually what it ended up being called. A box that could go in your house with a monitor where you have a computer. And then season two, Cameron Howe opened up a company called Mutiny, which was one of the early internet gaming companies. So she was there, and some of the characters split her off and do their own thing. Donna, Gordon Clark's wife, worked for Texas Instruments, which of course you know if you've ever been in a math class. Gordon was working on a ham radio. He was working on all these other things. There's been antivirus software companies, all of this. And now season four comes along. And season four, we're seeing the internet actually existing. And the story early in season four, as you kind of begin to see it take shape, is how can we index the internet? How can we make it so you can see all these various websites? Instead of just creating another website, what if we create a service that actually lists all of them built off certain searches. 
Yes, search engines. Early search engines, not necessarily Google. We're only in the 90s here. We were in the 80s when the show started. Now we're in the 90s. And the music and some of the references that they drop in kind of let you know exactly what year you're in. I'm not going to let you know exactly where they are, but early search engines. And it comes from an unlikely place. And that's where the episodes that I've seen have ended, is them still in that place. This is the final year. There are 10 episodes this year, and they are going to be done. Show never rated well, but because it's AMC, they can look at quality. They can look at critical response. And that could be enough for them to keep a show on air that never would have made it on NBC, for example, or Fox or ABC or CBS. They can wait because Mad Men never did tremendous ratings. Breaking Bad grew every year, but the first couple of years were a real struggle. And a lot of people might have been surprised it stayed on the air. Now AMC has one bona fide huge hit in The Walking Dead in terms of ratings. Fear the Walking Dead does well because of The Walking Dead. But almost nothing else has. So it's been about quality. Low Winter Sun was canceled because Low Winter Sun wasn't very good. Halt and Catch Fire survived because there was a passionate group of people that also happened to involve people like me that write about television for a living that gave them a reason to keep it alive. What I'm telling you is, you've got the backdrop of this tech story about computing and about technology and changes in society, which is big because it's not just about the computing. It's about what that means for us. This show started 30 years in the past, but it now is more indicative and more illustrative of what's to come in the future. But there's also the personal relationships, just like what drove Mad Men and Breaking Bad and any other show. The relationships between these five lead characters and the few others, Annabeth Gish and some of the others that they have put there, kids of Donna and Gordon, take a center stage in this season, especially Haley. All of that mixed together with a visual and audio style that really fits the time. Music that you'll remember and love and a story that is enveloping and always seems to be changing is why I'm telling you Halt and Catch Fire is the best show you're not watching. Now that The Leftovers is over, my evangelizing moves to Halt and Catch Fire because most of the other shows I'm going to talk about are things you have seen. Halt and Catch Fire, I'll bet you if you watched it, you probably didn't watch much of it. A lot of people responded to my review at Outkick.com this week and said, oh, I love this show. And that's good to hear. Any, anybody that tells me they're watching Halt and Catch Fire, I have respect for their television opinion because it's off the beaten path a little bit. AMC has proven, when AMC's got a new show coming out now, you care about it because they've proven their worth as a brand. Same thing with FX. Nobody cared about FX before The Shield. Shield comes out, then another show comes out and you care about it. Then Sons of Anarchy comes out. And now you're caring about Louie and Legit or Atlanta or You're the Worst or Better Things, Snowfall, whatever it is. The brand awareness for AMC has been quality. Rubicon only made it one season because the ratings weren't good, but it was quality and it ended fairly well and didn't necessarily need to be brought back. Halt and Catch Fire hasn't had its ending, and it's going to get its ending, and Cantwell and Rogers knew and know their endgame. So now they just have to fill it, and that's what they're doing, and they're doing a great job of it, and the first three episodes are fantastic of season four. Two and three and these three episodes are fantastic television. The end of season one is very good as well. So I have nothing to tell you about Halt and Catch Fire other than you need to be watching Halt and Catch Fire. And I'm going to be talking about it each week, at least a few minutes each week, 
And I'm going to leave it there for now and tell you, hey, go catch up with us. I've told you now to watch season one of BoJack Horseman over the next week. Also start, start Hawk and Catch Fire. You're probably not going to catch up in time. Obviously, you're not going to catch up in time for tomorrow's premiere. But you're probably not going to catch up before the, se- the series ends. But just get started now. You're going to like it. It's a binge show. It's a show that you can really enjoy. And it's unique. In a time where a lot of stuff is still iterative or the same, Halt and Catch Fire may have started looking like it was going to be a Mad Men clone and then completely went in a different direction and has fulfilled the promise of why I was so excited about it when I first heard about the concept. I said we're going to talk about the center next week. We are. Jessica Beale's doing just ungodly great work on USA. show is four episodes in. You can find it on demand. Watch it. We're going to talk about it next week. I've given you a lot of homework this week. I know you don't have time to do it. But if you're sitting in traffic for 12 hours during the eclipse, break up some on-demand and use your data and watch some stuff. Now, as I said, let's talk about obsessions in documentaries and stories and news and just things that whenever you see a story on it, you care. So my list is this, and this is where I want your thoughts. What is it that you, when you see there's going to be a documentary, a story or something like that, that you just immediately set the DVR? I don't mean like true crime as a whole. We all probably quietly watch the datelines of the world sometimes. Keith Morrison and me have hung out on more than a few evenings. But more specific topics, murder, whatever it might be, affairs, scandals, for me, my list, and you send me your list either to at jmartoutkick or jmartclone at gmail.com. For me, it's always kind of been the same, and it's grown over the last few years because of something new. But white-collar crime has always been something I've been fascinated by. And that goes with Ponzi schemes and all of that. I'm, I loved American Greed on CNBC. I used to watch it all the time. Love Stacey Keach's voice, too. But Madoff and Pyramid Schemes and all of these things. I think they're all sort of looped in. Pyramid Schemes kind of gets into the cult aspect to some extent with Amway and Quickstar and obviously Herbalife and Mary Kay. And you know, I used to date a girl, very seriously, lived with her as a matter of fact, that lost thousands of dollars behind Mary Kay. And until I actually explained it to her, never knew that it was indeed a pyramid scheme. And there may be somebody listening to me right now that is a Mary Kay consultant that is making money. If so, I'm really happy for you. The vast majority of people don't. They end up having to buy thousands of dollars worth of products that end up going into a garage that they can't sell. Whenever I see somebody with one of those pink cars, and I used to have a friend growing up, his mom was successful with Mary Kay, and she had a pink Cadillac. And I didn't know at the time. I was just like, wow, she's really good at her job. Yeah, she's really good at her job once you really find out how the structure is set up. One quick story. I was working selling cell phones out of a mall in Greenville, South Carolina. Greenville Mall. Actually, Haywood Mall. And me and one of my friends, who's actually a roommate as well, we were both working at this kiosk. And one night, a guy came up and told us he wanted to share a wonderful opportunity. He at first looked like he was going to buy a phone, and then he had a brochure. And then he had a folder. And that folder was for a company called Quickstar. And it's interesting. Like, okay, what's Quickstar? Quickstar has an interesting name. It sounds like Quick Start. Just like Amway sounds like American Way. These are all wrapped in the flag and wrapped in positivity. Wrapped in jingoism. 
wrapped in optimism. What is Quickstar? Well, Quickstar is actually Amway Online. I don't even know if it exists anymore, actually. But this at this point in time, it was the new thing. And there was a convention in town at the Bilo Center. You know, 6,000 people that were evangelists for Quickstar. And he wanted me to become an independent business owner, an IBO. What he didn't know is I already had been researching Amway and this stuff for a long time because I remembered hearing a story from my parents about a family friend that I knew well, spent time in a guy's house, was good friends with his kids when I was still living in Virginia. And this guy tried to get them to leave their jobs and start selling Amway with them. And they had to kind of cut ties with the guy. And I remembered hearing that. I'm like, why would you cut ties? Because he asked you to change jobs because he offered you an opportunity. So when I got old enough, I started paying attention. The first thing that appealed to me was cults and just different religions, but ones that were a little bit different. I wrote about and talked about in Sunday school when I lived in Winston-Salem about the Mormons and the Jehovah's Witnesses. And I cared so much about the Branch Davidians and Heaven's Gate and anything like that. And it still hasn't changed. Cults still fascinate me. They absolutely fascinate and frighten me because it's the brainwashing that really, I cannot get that out of my head and I can't hear enough stories about how it's done. Not because I'm planning on doing it to any of you, unless brainwashing has gotten you to watch The Leftovers or Halt and Catch Fire, in which, thank you very much. But it's the same thing with these pyramid schemes. They brainwash you. You, the way that the few people that make money in these companies make money in these companies is by getting you to attend seminars that cost you money, buying audio tapes, CDs of them talking and telling you how you need to continue to build your business by bringing more people in, attending more seminars, buying more of the stuff that you're listening to right then, and buying more products and working harder. I don't know what the average is now, but I remember the average of like 90% of independent business owners for Amway the last time I was really looking at the stats a few years ago, was less than $1,000 a year. That's how hard it is to sell soap door-to-door in this culture. The stuff's expensive. It's not necessarily that high a quality. The whole point is you're not supposed to be able to sell it. They don't care that you sell it. You are the mark. The independent business owner is the mark. So I was fascinated by this stuff. Fascinated by it. Still am to this day. I've, my Instapaper is littered with articles about various pyramid schemes. My, I've got, you know, FLVs and things. I've downloaded YouTube videos of various stuff on pyramid schemes. What is and is not a pyramid scheme. Beachbody, by the way, looks like it's a pyramid scheme. Lots of just stuff you wouldn't know about, but I've always been fascinated by it. And that ties into white-collar crime, the Madoffs of the world, the Ponzi schemes. Charles Ponzi and, and all the things that have come since then. Enron. The tech bubble. The big short. Stuff that Michael Lewis writes about. Liar's poker. The mortgage crisis. The housing crisis. Inside job. All of that stuff. Fascinated by all of it. Seen, seen it all many, many times. And it's all kind of the same. And then if you were to take all of the things that I just mentioned, from white-collar crime to Ponzi schemes to pyramid schemes to cults, and you wrapped all of that shit into one amazing pile of evil, 
you would have the Church of Scientology. And of all of the things that I just mentioned, and how many times I've gone back and watched it, and how much I enjoy reading about this stuff, and hate that so many people have been taken advantage of. I've never been more obsessed with anything in my life than I am Scientology. To the extent that Nashville is a big Scientology community in terms of there's a very nice church, there's a celebrity center here, and any any area of the country in which a lot of famous people live, the church wants to be because they want the right people that they can say are Scientologists. We know about Tom Cruise and we know about John Travolta and Mimi Rogers, Beck, which was really hard for me to hear because he's one of my favorite artists of all time. But both his parents were Scientologists and he married a Scientologist. And although he doesn't really talk openly about it, he, as long as I have not heard he's left the church, so he is a Scientologist. There have been numerous stories through the years of people leaving. Jason Begay, who his video appeared and disappeared off YouTube and now is back. Just two hours of him sounding completely insane after he left the Church of Scientology, just trying to explain this thing from the inside out once he realized what a mind fuck it was. Paul Haggis, who you remember from directing Crash, which shouldn't have won the Academy Award that year, but did. But Paul Haggis has done a lot of good stuff. He's kind of come out now and talked about his experience inside the church. But the name that's really popped up most lately is Leah Remini. Saved by the Bell, King of Queens, other smaller roles, but those are the two big ones. She's actually going to be on Kevin Can Wait this fall because they want to reunite her with Kevin James, James and see if that kind of re-sparks the love for those two together the way the Heffernans did on King Queens for that audience. That show never really appealed to me, although she was so hot, I enjoyed watching it. But now, what we knew about Leah Remini and what we've always known, another key Scientologist is Nancy Cartwright. Nancy Cartwright is the voice of Bart Simpson. Donated over $2 million, I think, at one time, not total, but just at one time, to the Church of Scientology a few years ago during one of their events. She is way in the tank. And there are many others. Uh, Marisol Nichols, who was on 24, beautiful brunette. She was a Scientologist. Nazanin Boniati, who was in Homeland for a season, was actually, according to the documentary Going Clear, Scientology in the Prison of Belief and other documents, she was handpicked to be the replacement for Nicole Kidman after the church broke up Tom Cruise and Nicole Kidman because Nicole Kidman's father was a psychiatrist, and psychiatrists are evil to Scientologists. To the extent that if you actually read through the story, they audited and heavily audited Nicole Kidman, and they convinced Tom Cruise of all these bad things that she had done, and they also tried to brainwash the children into making sure that they went with the father and not the mother as well. They decided she was bad for them, and they got her out of his life. He would end up marrying Katie Holmes, who basically said, screw you, when she found out the truth, when she had had enough of the Scientology and the David Miscavige's of the world, and got the hell out of there. Tom Cruise is still there, some believe, because they have so much on him potentially being gay, or this thing, same thing about John Travolta, they have so much dirt on him that he can't get out of there. I think the guy's probably just brainwashed to the extent that he's never really been able to figure anything out. 
because if you listen to some of the stories of old Scientologists, even celebrities, these people had no idea bad stuff was even happening. Leah Rimini is one of them. She was a Scientologist for over 20 years. She was in the Sea Org, which is kind of their staff that you can become as a kid. You have to sign a billion-year contract that you can never get out of. You end up making about $50 a week for the rest of your entire life and eating scraps and sometimes having to lick insects off the floor of a bathroom if you do something they don't like. Working over 100 hours a week to make $50. Straight-up slavery, folks. I mean, just the height of brainwashing. But she was big time. And she put out Troublemaker a few years ago when she finally broke with the church. But I had known she was in the church for a long time because I'd seen videos Scientology would put out of celebrities talking about all the great things and wonderful things that Scientology organizations had done. And they would tell the people in these various events that they would have that you would have to pay a lot of money to go to but were mandatory. They would tell these people all the good things that they were doing that weren't actually true. Rock Center with Brian Williams actually exposed that a few years ago when that was a thing and when Brian Williams was a thing. We've seen BBC Panorama and how Mike Rinder got into it with the host of that show, Jim Sweeney. You can find that, by the way. You can find those Panoramas and the Rock Centers on YouTube. You can find almost all the stuff I'm about to mention to you online. Just the books that I would suggest. I own all of these, by the way. Blown for Good, Mark Headley's book. Mark Headley's story is amazing. Mark Headley is a fascinating guy. His wife is a fascinating guy. They were both in the church for over 20 years. He worked in, in Golden Era Productions in California, was responsible for a lot of the videos and a lot of the event planning and the tech side, audio, all of those things. L. Ron Hubbard's private thoughts and all of his speeches and all of the stuff that Scientologists are forced to listen to constantly. And when he left, his story is amazing how he and his wife both got out and how they tried to run him off the road in a motorcycle. And when you leave Scientology and you are, especially if you're a Sea Org member, it's called Blowing. So that's why the book is called Blown for Good. One of the first books about Scientology was called Counterfeit Dreams. It was written by Jefferson Hawkins, another book I would definitely advise that you read. Jenna Miscavige Hill, yes, Miscavige intentionally in there, relative of David Miscavige. Jenna Miscavige Hill broke from the church and escaped and wrote a book called Beyond Belief. And when I say escaped, I mean escape because they will come after you and drag you back and then put you basically in a prison for years. But Jenna Hill got out and told her story in Beyond Belief, which was the first Scientology book that I actually sat down and read cover for cover. And it's when all of this became like the most important thing to me in terms of just paying attention to something in the news or in the world. That book is fascinating. It's also horrifying. Janet Reitman of Rolling Stone years ago wrote a book called Inside Scientology, The Story of America's Most Secretive Religion. Also advise you read that. And then finally, Lawrence Wright wrote Going Clear, Scientology and the Prison of Belief, or Scientology Hollywood and the Prison of Belief. And that's what Alex Gibney, who directed other things that I'm a big fan of, including Catching Hell, which was the Steve Bartman 30 for 30, but he's done some really good stuff, has Alex Gibney. He did the Going Clear documentary, which I've seen no short of 70 times in the last two years. I put it on at least once a week in the background. I know it by heart. I know the music. I know when the song is coming. I know everything. The book is very good. The film is very good. There's different information in each one. Some of it 
is a little sketchy. And some Scientologists will tell you, or some former Scientologists say, okay, well, that wasn't really entirely true. But most all of this stuff is 100% true. And then from that, of course, like I mentioned, Ron Miscavige, David Miscavige is the head of the Church of Scientology after L. Ron Hubbard died. He's, he's called the COB, the chairman of the board. His father, Ron, wrote a book after he left the church. And that is a terrifying read. And then there's Leah Remini. And she wrote Troublemaker, which, you know, showed that she is certainly a shade of gray. Like, there's a lot to dislike about Leah Remini. And then she's done this A&E, this A&E show, Scientology in the Aftermath, which just came back this week for the first episode of its second season. It looks like most of the season is going to focus on child and sexual abuse of children inside the church, which is just another wonderful thing that this piece of shit group does. Leah Remini in the first season, she she partnered up with Mike Rinder, and Mike Rinder was one of the three probably highest-ranking executives in the church for two decades or more, along with Marty Rathman and uh, Tom Devod and a couple of other folks. But Mike Rinder was kind of the guy. Mike Rinder's the one that got into the shouting match with Sweeney on the panorama. I mean, he was a nut job. He went on TV and basically said that anybody that said anything negative about Scientology, that David Miscavige had said those people were mentally ill or criminals, and Mike Rinder sat there point blank and said that was true. Because that's what you're told. In Scientology, whatever you're told is true. And you are to lie, no matter what, to make sure that you don't give up the ghost on that. And then there's fair game, and there's all the harassment that's, that's been done to all these people, and that's part of the story. But the first season of Scientology and the Aftermath, I didn't know how it was going to go. I knew it was going to be good, and I knew I was going to watch it, but I didn't know if it was going to take off. And it became kind of a cultural phenomenon to a group of folks and now it's back and it's doing good numbers again and it's going to be an even tougher season and leah remini has said the rest of her life is now dedicated to taking these people down and helping people so my point here is this stuff is maybe more interesting than fiction i cannot get enough of scientology i read tony ortega's underground bunker blog I've read the Scientology Money Project, which is done by a man named Jeffrey Augustine, who was also in the church for a small period of time. He now hosts a podcast that's been out for a couple of years now called Surviving Scientology. Yes, I listen to it. I've heard every episode. It's usually a deep dive for like an hour and 15 minutes with a former Scientologist. He's had Headley on like 10 times. He's my favorite guest. He's got Render on all the time. He's had Ron Miscavige on. He's had everybody fascinating stuff if you're into this i've read all this stuff i've watched all this stuff my scientology movie that came out last year going clear like i mentioned there is stuff out there in pop culture and this really isn't pop culture but it kind of is and what i'm fascinated by you know i had another friend that said she's in big into trauma documentaries that's never necessarily been me and i'm not into war so i'm not really into like war stories and things like that but i'd love to hear what it is that you watch when it comes to that kind of stuff. Not necessarily red or blue shows here. This I'm not really talking about that, even though for me, Scientology stuff's always blue because I'm just so interested. But I'm just curious what you dig and what you're into. Serial, making a murderer, that kind of thing. Um, and, you know, when we mentioned serial making a murderer a few weeks ago, I forgot to mention the Jinx, the Robert Durst six-part that happened on HBO a few years ago. Andrew Jarecki's project, which resulted in maybe potentially putting that guy away. 
So there's all of these kinds of things out there. For me, when you take white-collar crime, Ponzi schemes, pyramid schemes, and cults, and you take all of the things that I've cared about my entire life and put that all together and it actually turns out to be one thing, an entity called the Church of Scientology, all of a sudden I've found my calling in terms of watching and paying attention to something like that. I'm careful what I say about it, at least until this point, because they'll come after you hardcore. They'll expose all sorts of things and find all sorts of things. I don't really have skeletons in the closet, but they've also never been shy about just straight up lying and calling you things that you're not. Anybody that leaves the church, they put up a website about them and try to destroy them. The money that it costs to rise up the levels and the bridge of total freedom inside the Church of Scientology can go into the hundreds of thousands of dollars. Sexual abuse, child abuse, starvation, terrible conditions, unlivable conditions, eating completely expired and tainted tacos because they don't want to spend an extra dollar even though David Miscavige has fresh fish brought from hundreds of miles away every morning directly to him on a truck. It is a Ponzi scheme. It is a cult. It is a straight-up, brainwash, get-me-rich situation. And these people actually think that they are helping the rest of society, and they have no clue. Most of them, when they get out, they find out that the internet exists because it's blacklisted completely. They're able to actually go to websites and they find out the atrocities that were done and that they may have even assisted in and didn't know about because they propped up this entity. And that's why Leah Remini's show is intriguing. I wish they would take the soft filter off of it, and I assume that's because she's so vain and she wants to look perfect, but it looks like NCIS, which is almost unwatchable, simply because of the soft filter that makes all of these people look prettier than they are. Leah Remini's a beautiful woman, but she makes two mistakes. One, this soft filter on the show, and two, she wears so much makeup, and she's just a naturally attractive female. It's completely unnecessary, in my opinion, but, you know, to each his own. The show is great. You should be watching it. I think you should get into Scientology, and we'll continue to talk about it as we move forward. So that was a little bit different. Not necessarily what I came in yesterday when I was kind of sketching out and saying, all right, what am I going to talk about? I didn't think about Scientology, and then it hit me. I'm like, of course I'm going to talk about Scientology. I might know more about Scientology now than I do sports or television. (laughs) I've just kind of scratched the surface with you guys. But again, just that list. Going Clear, Lawrence Wright's book, Genemis Cabbage Hill, Beyond Belief. Blown for Good, Mark Headley's book, which you can get very cheap on Amazon, by the way. Tony Ortega's Underground Bunker, if you just want to look at how things are updating on a daily basis, he's one of the best. Uh, Janet Reitman's Inside Scientology book has a lot of good material in it. The Surviving Scientology podcast I mentioned, hosted by Jeffrey Augustine, is out there. I would definitely download that. You can hear from Mike Rinder and Aaron Smith-Levin and Jefferson Hawkins and the Headleys and so many other just people that are that lived this for so long and just tell you straight from the heart how awful it actually was. Jason McGay's shoot interview, the Panorama, BMC, BBC specials, all that you can find on YouTube. My Scientology movie, which is now available on demand through a lot of cable services. It came out last year. I would check that out. And then certainly, obviously, Leah Remini's Scientology in the Aftermath show, which just began its second season for A&E. And it's going to be enormous, and it's just going to continue to grow. And I still, this is what's amazing, and I'm going to end here. The estimate is that there are probably 10,000 active Scientologists in the world. 
That's it. But they've got four to five billion dollars because of how they harass and attack and go after their own people to just surrender money and hand it over. This is a group that still releases all of L. Ron Hubbard's, like Dianetics is not available via an audiobook. It's not available via iPad. Like it's available, I guess it is available via audiobook, but not via iPad. Because the first person that got it, all they'd have to do is copy it, and then everybody has it, and then you're not paying thousands of dollars to get all of these teachings. Luckily, people have left the church, and they have taken all this material, and they've put it out there for consumption. So the church is struggling badly right now. Good. I feel so sorry for the people in it. The disconnection policy alone is one of the single most barbaric and inhuman things I've ever heard of. Telling people, if you leave the church, you're not allowed to talk to any member of your family that's still in the church, and we're going to tell them to cut you off completely. And the fact that they do it because that's how much of a mental, psychological hold they have on everyone within their walls. Just heinous. Absolutely heinous. But in terms of something intriguing, you should check out the shows and the books and all those things that I mentioned And if you're as fascinated by this stuff as me, all of it, the Amway stuff, all of that stuff, cults, any of it, at jmart.kick, jmartclone at gmail.com, we'll talk about it. I'd never tire of talking about Scientology. I've sat down with friends and talked, I talked with a six-hour thing I was talking about for HBO years or uh, several minutes back. Scientology, man, I'll sit and talk to you for weeks about Scientology. Even if we just keep going back to the same, how is this even possible? Of all the bad things that are going on in society right now, and there have been a ton of them, this is something that just boggles my mind that it could even exist. That evil like this, that insanity like this, that greed like this could exist. And that people could actually follow somebody like L. Ron Hubbard. Just absolutely blows my mind. Appreciate you guys sticking with me. I know that was a little bit different. Actually, this whole episode was kind of different. Went into screener policy and all sorts of things. We were talking about Game of Thrones. Tried to sell you on Halt and Catch Fire. Told you the Defenders is worth your time. And then we talked about Scientology for about 20 minutes. And it's nowhere near enough because I'd like to do more. But I'm going to go ahead and end it there. Next week, like I said, The Center. We're going to get into that. So you've got time to watch those four episodes that have aired. Jessica Biel doing fantastic work. BoJack Horseman Season 1 in-depth next week. We can talk about Episode 6 of Game of Thrones next week because we will have all seen it legally by that point, and we can kind of speculate as to what's going to happen in the finale, which will then be two days away. That and tons more. Who knows what's going to happen between now and then? And we'll talk about it if it's relevant. I'm at jmartoutkick on Twitter jmartclone at gmail.com hope you guys had a good week it was not a great week in this country the extremes on both sides the loudest and dumbest voices are controlling all of what people are covering it's not even that you talk to your friends and you hear different things like i'll talk to friends that are moderates and everything i mean i'm a conservative libertarian i've said that in the past or with libertarian leanings but i took the r off my name the second that Ted Cruz dropped out and I knew what was going to happen in the primary last year. 
not a Democrat, not a progressive in any way. Just believe the government should be out of people's lives. And that whatever you do behind closed doors, you can do behind closed doors. But what we've seen from the far right and the far left, these are the same people. In it for the same reasons. Hate, power, money, or revenge in some cases. But I didn't say much about Charlottesville or anywhere else because everything was said and way too much was said. There were very, the right things were said and then a lot of really not right things were said. Only thing I felt about Charlottesville was I just felt sorry for the country because we're better than that. At least I always thought we were. And I still think we outnumber them. Whatever side you fall on, the free-thinking, fair-minded, decent people in this world still outnumber the assholes. Never forget that. Treasure moments with your family. Treasure moments with your friend. (laughs) Treat people respectfully. Try to live your best life. Don't spend your time scouring social media or scouring humanity to find ways in which you can differentiate yourself or get mad. So many people just go through social media to get pissed off. I've stopped doing that. What does that accomplish? I'd rather just watch TV. And that's why you listen to this podcast. See you next week. I'll kick the culture out. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to Chumbacasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.